0: The words of the 19th century pastor and scholar Charles Spurgeon. We might preach till our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it, the Holy Spirit changing the human will. We might as well preach to stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word to give it power to convert the soul. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, come with your mysterious power and magnify Jesus Christ among us. Deeply humble the prideful heart of the one who would dare speak in your name. Soften the ears of your listeners that through your word, hearts, souls, minds, strengths would be transformed and empowered, all for the increase of your glorious kingdom. In your matchless name, amen. In a a 1997 issue of Morning Glory, an account of the British Lord Melbourne's response after hearing a certain preacher went something like this. He exclaimed to his friend, "'It is too bad I have always been a supporter of the church, "'and I have always upheld the clergy,' because it is really too bad to have to listen to a sermon like that, which we have heard this morning. Why, the preacher actually insisted upon applying religion to a man's personal life. I suppose a thoughtful pastor desires that to ever and always be the case, not complaints from parishioners but that every Sunday's sermon and scripture would challenge our personal lives, would lead to spiritual rubber hitting very practical roads. But I open with that story simply to give fair warning that our particular text this morning could very possibly stake an above-average claim on the nitty-gritty, the personal, the pragmatic details of our lives. I pray that the Spirit might make each of our hearts open to receive that word. Hold that thought. During my years as a pastor, I surely learned many, many things, mostly related to my own frailties and lack of sanctification. It was a steep learning curve, more accurately a learning cliff, since I was falling rather than climbing. But other parts of pastoral ministry were not humbling so much as just wince-worthy. One such curiosity, something that never ceased to amaze me, went something like this. The end of the service, I was in the foyer greeting people as they leave, and perhaps there was a fellowship dinner or a discipleship activity of some sort that occurred after the service. That frequently was the case in our, our church. And I would get some people coming out of the service saying, you know, thanks for the sermon. That's not the amazing part, the curious part, although some weeks probably. Um, sorry, I can't stay. I've got a jet. I have a 15-page paper due tomorrow morning. Or sorry, family is coming to visit and the entire house needs to be cleaned. Occasionally, it would be a confession like, sorry to miss last week's service. I had to go to the office to catch up on a bunch of things at work. Now, in the back of my unsanctified mind, a snarky thought would always arise. Something like this Oh, no problem. I'm in a similar predicament. Before tomorrow, I've got to catch up on a boatload of coveting. And you can't imagine how far behind I am on false testimony, murdering, adultering, dishonoring my parents, and idol fashioning. I suppose it's possible that my former church was truly unique. And no doubt many of you embrace the Lord's Day and its rhythm of rest with delight. But my sense is that sidestepping the fourth commandment is a rather widespread phenomenon. In fact, honor the Sabbath is pretty much in a separate time zone from all the rest. You know, like, wasn't that for another time? However well believers do or don't live up to the other nine commandments, we at least regard them as as valid, important, legitimate standards of of right and wrong. Within the church, blatant disregard for those other nine, usually, or at least publicly, are still reckoned contrary to the will and way and and mandate of God. So why does number four often merit little more than a wink-wink? Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. It's not like this text is an arcane superseded ceremonial law that would indict me for wearing a 50-50 cotton polyester blended fiber t-shirt. The the mandate of Sabbath is no less than one of the ten foundational moral boundaries with which God marks his chosen people. The divine calling to a rhythm of rest is, is spectacularly important a persistent theme throughout Scripture. Over a third of the almost 150 uses of the term Sabbath occur in the New Testament. It's not just a topic buried deep in Leviticus and Numbers. When Paul heralds in Romans 14 the freedom that one person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind, the apostle is almost certainly not undoing a weekly Sabbath, or at least so almost all the scholars would say, he's confirming that the Gentiles do not need to heed a raft of designated feasts and ritual festival days that were touted as necessary by pious first-century Jews. To parallel his directive in modern-day terms, Christmas and Easter, Pentecost, Ash Wednesday, Epiphany, Advent, Lent, these kinds of observances can certainly be helpful markers and reminders, but they aren't moral obligations. And in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus responds to the Pharisees' critique of the disciples grabbing heads of grain as they walk along, Jesus is addressing the purpose of Sabbath, not abolishing the existence of it. He dismisses the multitude of ticky-tack rules that rabbis had added but not the true importance of the day itself. In fact, if you consider Jesus' various teachings related to the Ten Commandments, when did he ever lower the bar? Don't murder? I say don't even get angry. Don't commit adultery? I say don't even lust. People of God attempts to discard God's mandate for weekly rest fly in the face of a persistent calling of his word. At this point, let me see if I can read a few minds. Where did they get this old-fashioned Bible thumper? There must have been no one available to fill the pulpit this week. He looks 46, but he sounds more like my 96-year-old grandmother. Maybe next he'll tell us we shouldn't watch movies or play cards. In the matchless words of my high school basketball coach and longtime member of this church, Gary King, no, 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 no. (laughs) You can guess what kind of a basketball player I was. (laughs) In the light of Christ, what the rhythm of Sabbath rest will look like for each of us is almost certainly very diverse very much not centered on rules or restrictions. The precise nature of of weekly restoration will largely be a very personal and individual matter between each of us and, and the Lord. What I am saying and saying passionately is that as believers, many of us need to stop ignoring God's call for us to weekly rest. Let me put all this a little more cheerfully. The fourth commandment may be, may be better understood as the fourth freedom. Consider this with a New Year's analogy. Imagine the change in your perspective about keeping those infamous resolutions if the Lord commanded thusly You must eat more ice cream. More chocolate would really please me. You absolutely must not labor so hard at exercising. No matter what your boss says, every week you are required to take a mental health day. For 2019, I insist that every seventh day you break your New Year's resolutions. Sabbath-keeping doesn't sound so bad, eh? Preachers are well advised to be bald-facedly honest about their spiritual unachievements use themselves as the negative example. Alas, though, this morning, I'm going to take a ridiculous risk and cite one personal, very miniature sanctification here. 28 years ago, at the outset of my uh, sophomore year of college, I listened to a thoughtful sermon and became convicted of my complete lack of any Sabbath habit. So pretty much cold turkey, I just up and said to myself, I do schoolwork all week, so I'll drop it on Sundays, period. The result was was overwhelming to me. The church service, I I was not impatient to leave, had no frustration about a longer-than-normal sermon. I didn't sit in the service making mental lists of what I needed to complete later in the day. Worship was just simply far better. Sunday afternoons, I had no regrets about losing too much time to a nap. Curiously, Sabbath coincided with the ability to stick to a regular exercise schedule. I don't think that's a coincidence. Admittedly, too, it freed up a lot of time for long phone calls to a hot little number then named Heidi. Shea. (laughs) And my grades... No big deal. Uh, Sure, I probably bombed a Monday morning quiz or two. I certainly lost a Saturday or two paper writing. But honestly, I, I don't think it affected my grades at all. And if anything, it might have improved them because I had more stamina during the week. That simple experience, personal experience, one that sadly I have not lived up to faithfully in the years since, is very much a mere anecdote. Jesus, of course, reveals a truly profound and authoritative starting point for Sabbath. In the Mark 2 passage I mentioned a few moments ago, where the Pharisees condemned uh, Jesus' disciples, his response is this resolute declaration, The Sabbath was made for man, for people, not people for the Sabbath. The foundational truth is obvious. Sabbath is a gift, Sabbath is a gift. It's not a taskmaster, a slave owner intent on giving us back-breaking duties. Sabbath is one of our true master's gracious gifts to his children. Jesus presents to you the fourth commandment, not as an annoying burden, but as a liberating, abundant life blessing. Okay, but let me put on my... Inner adolescence and posit a question. Why? Perhaps we should have asked first, why? Why Sabbath? I'd just like to suggest two broad answers that can be readily drawn from God's Word. The first is straightforward and unsurprising, found right in our Exodus passage, chapter 20, verse 11. Keep the Sabbath, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested. On the seventh day. First major reason for Sabbath is that creatures flourish when they imitate their Creator. We are made in God's image and we follow in the pattern He has laid down. Even though God doesn't need the kind of physical rest that His creatures require, His pause indicates the goodness of savoring savoring the fruit of labor and preparing for more. His creation is designed with the need for seasons and cycles, hard work and refreshment. We pause because the Creator pauses. But there's a crucial second reason. Are you aware that the Ten Commandments are actually found twice in the Bible? Typically, we think of the Exodus 20 listing, but they are also recounted in Deuteronomy 5. And the accounts are nearly identical, except, curiously, in the presentation of the fourth commandment. Whereas Exodus 20's rationale for Sabbath is essentially rest because God did. The Deuteronomy 5 version offers a different reason. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Remember that you were slaves, that the Lord brought you out. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Do you see the connection? In the bondage of Egypt, God's people had no Sabbath. No rest, no freedom to cease working. They were never permitted to pause in their brick-making. Deuteronomy tells us that the Sabbath is a sign and reminder that God frees his people. Without God's salvation, we have no true rest, no true Sabbath. Kind of ironic how easily We can perceive the day as an obligatory burden when God has instituted it to proclaim the opposite. The Sabbath, in a way like baptism and communion, is a visible manifestation of a deeper, higher, invisible reality. Through his work on the cross, God has freed us from labor, from slavery to sin. His work provides us with true, eternal rest. We could even say that observing the Sabbath, hope I don't overstate this here, has a sacramental hint of do this in remembrance of me. Remember the Sabbath, and in so doing, remember the ultimate rest I have given you. Enact this literal, visible rest, and in so doing, mark my provision of redemption. Sabbath is a symbol of, Of salvation. Sabbath is a symbol of salvation. Augustine's pronouncement or Augustine or Augustine, however you may wish. His pronouncement sums it up rather pithily. Our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And we've just sung that as well. We need to allow a weekly rhythm of tangible, intentional, visible rest to reorient our consciousness of how much we've been given in Christ. Now we get to the part that Lord Melbourne would really be aghast at, the rather dangerous part, the most blatant application to personal life. Uh, Allow me to offer four very pragmatic observations. First, God's call is to devote one day in seven. One day in seven. This is a a creational principle. It can't be approximated with an hour of rest here, a trip to the park there. Think about it in terms of sleep. Naps may get you through, but a full night's sleep is what you really need. Similarly here, we were... We are created, designed, intended for a day of rest every seven. Sabbath is a full day every seven, not the sum total of many mini rest times that simply enable you to keep running on the hamster wheel. Oh, but Heisinga, I'd never get anything done. Or that's just totally unrealistic in this day and age. Well, God is able to do miraculous things for you and help you accomplish more than you expect in six days, but that isn't exactly the norm. More than likely, if you take a day off, you probably will accomplish less. But guess what? When we get less done, God gets more done. Don't take that too far, of course. But seriously, why do we consider achieving so important? Some cultures, especially many of those uh, from the African continent, often have a better handle on this. But at least in Western cultures, when people meet for the first time, invariably after, oh, what's your name? The initial question is, so what do you do? What do you do? Have you ever given thought to how much of our personal identity we wrap up in doing? rather than being, how easy it is to tie our worth to our labor rather than to who and whose we are. Among other things, that leads to evaluating my neighbor by the societal prestige of her job, by her accomplishments, rather than by the fact of her being the image of God in my midst. It also certainly deludes me to think that if I fill my 24 7 with do, 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 then somehow I am better than if I merely do, do, do during, say, 10 6, rather than 24 7. That's a prideful and misguided self assessment. Brothers and sisters, Any preoccupation with doing and achievements is an idolatry that necessarily compromises relationships. It can also lead to physical exhaustion, emotional anxiety, and spiritual poverty. People of God, our doing is overrated. God calls us to find our identity in what he does. And one thing he does is command this, once a week, full stop. Full stop. A while back, I received an email from my Uncle Gene, who ran across a writing of theologian Oscar Romero. Here's a partial quote. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very, very well. It may be incomplete, But it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. Wise words from Oscar Romero. A second practical outworking of Sabbath is this. It involves ceasing from whatever your particular six-day labor is. Consider what it means that the fourth commandment forbade also the labor of servants and animals on the Sabbath. It means that the work of financial provision ceases. Our easy takeaway here, don't take your job home with you. Oh, but I have no choice in the matter think at some important level, I'm pretty sure you do. We may make less money or eventually uh, may feel compelled to pursue a different job. Of course, some people, medical workers and so forth, offer needed ministry to others. They may have to choose a different Sabbath than Sunday. Pastor Wes surely can't take Sundays off, except for today. <laughs> Here's a related musing. I rather wonder if parents of young children might be in the same boat as far as a non-traditional day for Sabbath. I mean, seriously, the whole solar system has to align to get three kids all potted and changed and faces wiped and breakfast stains removed and shoes staying on and the car seat transferred and on and on. Just a thought. If your job is primarily in the home and your six days are filled with laundry and cleaning and cooking and transportation duty and whatnot, do those another day. So you have to wear a different outfit Monday morning. Big deal. So there's some dirt on the floor for another day. Whatever. Perhaps another dweller may reckon the magnitude of the task and pick up some of the slack on Tuesday, you know. Students, your job is studying, so drop the stinking homework. Okay, I guess I am a 96-year-old grandmother now, but anyway. But I've got a test on Monday, but I have to finish this essay. Try Saturday, or hand it in on Tuesday instead. Take the lower grade and kiss it up to God. I, I doubt anyone cares that in seminary I got a B instead of an A in Hebrew. My defense, I guess, would be that following Shabbat was more important to me than being able to read it. All of you, simply consider what is not your six-day labor. For me, throughout years of church ministry, swinging a hammer or mowing the lawn were frequently Sabbath activities for me. Am I a heretic? I certainly hope not. Such physical activity, given the content of my previous six days, was definitely not working. It was seriously restful. A little carpentry or raking leaves was rejuvenating and refreshing because it's the opposite of what I did most of the week. In the light of Christ... And and if I've been too, too much of a pulpit pounder, just hear this. In the light of Christ, the definition of rest is no fixed standard like that found in the Israelite ceremonial law. Instead, discern it with a prayerful good faith assessment of whatever is a respite from the previous days in your week. There's no chapter and verse to cite for this third very practical, very practical Sabbath nudge, but that's largely because Paul and Peter and Matthew couldn't Instagram each other about it. I'll present it as a legitimate, non-rhetorical question. Is time on your electronic device restful? I'm guessing there are ways and times that it may well be. But I personally need to spend some time pondering a thought that struck me this week. Distraction is not the same as rest. Distraction is not the same as rest. Considering how much we're on devices the previous six days, a seventh-day Sabbath from at least social media might not be such a bad idea. At minimum, something to consider. No pomposity or judgment about that from me. Um, I, you know, feel compelled to consider whether faithful Sabbath will require a with, rhythm of rest from our endless virtual connectedness, but I was on Facebook this morning myself. But do we need a Sabbath from incessant availability, nonstop editorializing, obligatory responses? And finally, a fourth practical outworking of Sabbath. Up till now, maybe I've implied that the nature of Sabbath is simply about a personal vacation once a week, a day for me, 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 a time to do whatever pops my clutch. But consider the command God gives us. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It is to be a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Keep it holy. Holy is a word that we think of as meaning pure or righteous, But another very important part of the word's meaning is set apart, devoted to God. Does that pop your balloon a little? Just when I thought I actually had permission to mellow out for a day. I mean, does devoted to God imply I must spend all Sunday praying, reading the Bible, participating in a small group study, creating an Advent calendar, not to mention attending a minimum of two church services and composing a psalm for good measure? Not if that's a burden to you. But as one pastor has said, it is impossible that a day focused on Jesus should be a burden to the believing heart. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about those words of Christ. I don't think it's an overstatement to conclude that Sabbath conveys the defining uniqueness of Christianity. God has done the work. We are saved by resting in that grace. Christ has labored on the cross. We gain the gift of eternal Sabbath. Therefore, our observance of Sabbath can be a shining testimony of the gospel. Given that truth, how can actions of gratitude not be restorative? I urge you to consider also outward-focused Sabbath activities as part of your rest devoted to God. Each Sunday afternoon growing up, I observed my dad. visit Richard Steinemann, a man with terminal multiple sclerosis declining in the Houghton nursing home each week. Right out our window, I could see the nursing home. Dad would chat about various things with Richard, but always, too, would read from Scripture. Richard's paralysis progressed to the point where he could no longer speak. I'm sure that Sunday visitation required a measure of sacrifice from my dad. But it also ended up yielding hmm, an unparalleled joy. See, one Sunday in the waning days of his earthly life, in response to a conversation about whether he desired and embraced the eternal grace of Jesus Christ, Richard blinked his eyes with a resolute and repeated yes. I cannot know the exact thoughts that were trapped in Richard's mind. I suppose a paralyzed man desperate for the presence and affirmation of a visitor might simply have wanted to please But I know that his answer was not an early flash in the pan. It was the culmination of a long journey of relationship, of Sabbath habit. And I know my dad plumbed the reality of faith with Richard multiple times thereafter. My point today is simply that as far as is humanly discernible, I believe a habit of weekly Sabbath devoted to the Lord added a precious soul to the kingdom. Perhaps this can be a New Year's resolution, then, that truly matters. Resolve to rest. Hear that both as a challenge and a comfort, a mandate and a privilege to be drawn closer to Christ. Resolve to rest in the seventh-day grace of God. In so doing, discover firsthand the blessing of the Lord's promise through his messenger, Isaiah, chapter 58. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of your ancestor, Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us pray. O God, grant us strength to rest. May we use the title... Lord's Day, truthfully and with joy. In the name of the one who has freed us, amen.